Hi, Rick Samprin here. Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. Hamilton taxpayers are going to have to dig a little deeper this year. A free menstrual product pilot project is coming to Burlington. There's a call to stop two-tiered privatization of COVID testing in Ontario. Niagara is gearing up for the 2022 tourism season. We have a great story to tell you on this National Indigenous Languages Day. And the Oscar slap shows that Hollywood's image is still clouded in toxic masculinity. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Generally well below other municipalities, but still, uh, you know, raising the, the resources and funds we need to uh, to maintain our city and continue to deliver our services. And we are in the delivery of services business. That is the voice of Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger describing the budget as Prudent and affordable. Yes, we're talking budgets here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Hopefully we'll do it in a way that you can understand and uh, take some information with you that you can share around the water cooler or the virtual water cooler. Hamilton's 2020 operating budget in the books. It was approved at uh, City Council yesterday and it includes... An average residential tax increase at 2.8%. Yes, property taxes going up once again, which, you know, after a two-year pandemic and um, and a continuing pandemic, that is not a surprise. Mike Zagarek is the General Manager of Finance and Corporate Services at the City of Hamilton and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Mike. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Thanks for having me back. Yeah. How did we land on 2.8%? So, uh, Rick, yesterday, Council completed the final stage of the city's 2022 budget process. It started in the fall of 2021, and Council completed months of deliberations, receiving budget information. And uh, through Council's approval yesterday, they approved a operating budget of $994 million. And as uh, the mayor identified, this is a tax increase, as has been approved over the last decade, that's at or below inflation. So the 2.8% residential tax increase, that'll translate into about $120 for average residents. And as the mayor stated yesterday, the city supports 70 services, and not only will this tax increase support the continued delivery of those services, we've made a series of investments, councils approved additional dollars towards improving services or introducing some new services. We'll talk about some of those in the next few minutes, but uh, we, we know, you and I both know that, you know, with food prices going up and gas prices going up and inflation and interest rates and yada, 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 there's going to be a lot of taxpayers saying that, oh, my taxes is going up again. What would the budget look like? What would our city look like if that 2.8% was 0%? So, uh, Rick, if it was 0%, just in terms of financial uh, impacts, we would forego about $40 million of investments. And as relates to $40 million of investments, uh, anyone who's in the service sector will know that we rely on our employees to deliver those services. So it would mean we would have to reduce our workforce in order to accommodate the $40 million or draw from some of our savings, which is a short-term solution, not a long-term solution, or defer infrastructure projects. And council decided to take uh, the opposite approach. They saw the significance of infrastructure and continuing to maintain our assets. The city uh, is responsible for $24 billion of infrastructure and about a quarter percent, uh, or sorry, a quarter of the 2.8% is going towards maintaining our infrastructure. So council saw that as a priority going forward and supported a 0.65% capital levy increase 
which is included in that 2.8%. I'm sure our residents will be uh, glad to hear that. The city is continuing to invest in improving things like infrastructure and other services around town. Uh, we're speaking with Mike Zagarek, the General Manager of Finance and Corporate Services with the City of Hamilton. Is City Council finalizing a 2.8% tax increase in their operating budget uh, yesterday. What pandemic-related pressures remain at play? Rick, we are still experiencing the same pandemic-related pressures in 2022 as uh, we did in 2020 and 2021. Vaccination-related impacts, transit-related, some of our user fees such as parking, but as well housing and shelter services. And in 2022 through the 2022 budget, uh, transportation and housing have been priorities of this council and previous councils. And yesterday, Council approved an additional $4.4 million in social housing and affordable housing investments. And that uh, investment, in part, goes towards supporting the $194 million that City Housing Hamilton, City of Hamilton, and Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation agreed to in 2021. So the City of Hamilton is responsible for $195 million of that $194 million investment. And that investment is going towards repairing and renewing approximately 6,300 city housing uh, units. And so that's improving the state of those facilities, improving the infrastructure, social housing infrastructure, and improving the living experience for those residents. And just beyond uh, housing, Rick, is we saw the impact of the pandemic on uh, long-term care facilities. And through the approval of the budget, councils approved improving 44 beds at Macasa Lodge, converting them from share to single rooms and adding additional 20 beds. So we saw the impact of the pandemic on the vulnerable population in long-term care, and yesterday's budget is going towards improving that facility. That's good news as well. There's also some improvements and investments in police services and paramedics in our city overall. I think a thumbs up on the, uh, the budget process this year. Mike, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me back, Rick. Have a good day. You too. Mike Segarek, General Manager of Finance and Corporate Services with the City of Hamilton. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Great story out of Burlington. It is launching a pilot project that is going to see free menstrual products in 90 public washrooms at 19 recreational facilities, including City Hall. Here to discuss it is Marianne Meadboard, the mayor of Burlington. Marianne, good morning. Welcome back to the show. Good morning. Great to be here this morning. Why is it important to implement this pilot project now? This is about equity. This is about equity, diversity. It's about everybody feeling welcome in our washrooms, uh, in our facilities. And, you know, we don't charge people for uh, toilet paper. We provide that free of charge. We provide paper towels when you wash your hands. Uh, You know, menstrual products have, have been taboo in the past. Even a woman having you know, having to hide when she has her period or not discuss this. Uh, there's been a lot of shame around it historically, and uh, and there shouldn't be. It's a natural function, uh, clearly. Uh, brings life into the world. And so we uh, want to make sure, we want to destigmatize that by treating it like any other bodily function and uh, and make sure that we provide those products for women uh, when they come into our facilities. Now, in saying that, offering free menstrual hygiene products uh, considered essential in the community. So why a pilot project as opposed to a permanent one? Well, we want to test how the best way to deliver these uh, will be. Uh, we chose to go with a really quick, uh, quick and easy route, and we'll just have a basket with those products on the counter in our 
facilities. We're going to see how that goes. Uh, you know, we, we also want to test, you know, what the demand is, how often will we have to restock so we know what we need to buy uh, versus, you know, we could install dispensers free of charge still, but have them in a dispenser, which is a which would have taken longer. We wanted to get this up, uh, you know, up and running right away. So uh, so we're going to test it out. We're going to see uh, what the uptake is and what the demand is. And then we'll know uh, for budget next year what we need to do to make this permanent. There's no question that this is going to be permanent. This is just sort of we're in the experimenting phase about how best to do it. So will all that data be compressed and analyzed in the new year? Uh, they'll be looking at that throughout this okay. year, and we'll have a review at the end of this year. So they'll know, you know, month to month what, what they need to do to restock. And, you know, one of the really, really important pieces to this and why it was so compelling is we had a, a two young ladies come to uh, high school students, the Pink Project. They, they developed this themselves. They ran a pilot in the city of Burlington. And what they told us was that there are women who experience what's called period poverty. They can't afford to buy these products or they have to give up some other essential And so this is really critically important that we make everyone feel welcome uh, by providing this for people. Marianne Meadward is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Marianne is the mayor of the city of Burlington, which has launched a pilot project that is going to put free menstrual products in 90 public washrooms throughout the city uh, at 19 rec facilities, including City Hall. To find a facility near you, you can go online to burlington.ca forward slash locations. Um, this is certainly a barrier for many people, but it's a barrier that we don't we don't see Well, people don't talk about it, and I'm glad we are. And, you know, one of the great things after we launched the pilot, the community response has been overwhelming. It it has been so positive. Uh, It's it's probably one of the the posts that has gotten the most likes and discussions in in months. People really see that this is necessary. And, And even if for some women it's not an affordability issue, there are times when um, you're not prepared uh, for when it arrives. Uh, you know, you don't have the products with you. This is a way for people, and you know, people would have to go home, uh, leave work, leave school, uh, and miss out on daily life because of this. We don't want that to be the price of being a woman. This provides, a, you know, this provides a way for uh, for people to stay and to participate as well. Before we let you go, uh, we've been hearing from health experts that uh, Canadians should be ready for a possible sixth wave of COVID-19. How, how is Burlington getting ready? Well, we've had two years of dealing with this getting ready. So, you know, we've come together as a community. I know uh, all the communities around us. You know, we know what it takes to keep ourselves safe. We know the science and the health. Wear a mask, wash your hands, stay home when you're sick. Uh, use all those digital tools like Zoom uh, that we've all learned. Nobody knew the name two years ago. And just be kind to each other. And I think that's what's gotten us through two years. That's what will get us through uh, the next phase of this. And on, on a positive note, too, you know, looking towards, uh, you know, the rest of the spring, this summer, certainly the fall and into the winter, uh, there's a lot of great opportunities ahead now that we're, I think, hopefully the worst of what the pandemic has brought to us Um uh, in a sense of positivity, what are you looking forward to most this spring and summer? Sound of Music is back, which <laughs> yeah. is going to be awesome. Live music in the park, free. Uh, that, you know, our signature event, which has won awards nationwide and, and beyond. Uh, I know people are so excited. I had somebody stop me on the street yesterday and ask me if Sound of Music was coming back. And 
uh, I was happy to report that it was. So, you know, I think we're all just looking forward to be able to get together, have those events, have those festive moments that we've all missed just so dearly. I couldn't agree with you more. Marianne Mead Ward, thanks for the time today and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks. Great to speak with you. That is Marianne Mead Ward, the mayor of Burlington, again in Burlington. There's a pilot project that has been launched for the remainder of this year that will see free menstrual products uh, placed in washrooms at 19 recreational facilities, including City Hall. And to find a facility near you, go online to burlington.ca forward slash locations. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Over the last week, COVID infections have jumped 18%, hospitalizations up 24% in Ontario. With that in mind, the Ontario Health Coalition is calling on the provincial government to stop a so-called two-tiered privatization of COVID-19 testing. It also wants a return to public testing as this sixth wave looms. Joining us from the Ontario Health Coalition is its executive director, Natalie Mara. Natalie, good morning. Welcome to Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning. Can you explain the two-tiered system when it comes to COVID testing? What are you seeing? Yeah, well, what we found was that um, on December 30th, the provincial government severely restricted access to public testing for COVID-19. That's the PCR testing, which is the laboratory, you know, chain testing um, that actually has it's the gold standard so unlike your rat you know your your rapid test that you get which is not very good with omicron and sometimes takes days to show positive or doesn't show positive at all at the same while people are out and about and potentially infecting other people the pcr tests work more quickly and they give more accurate results so december 30th the province um severely restricted public access to those tests, but at the same time, it has allowed and actually contracted with private for-profit clinics. And this has been expanding step-by-step through the pandemic um, to do the COVID swabs. And uh, and what we found was that a whole array of those private for-profit clinics are actually charging people mostly around two, just over $200 per test for access to COVID tests. So people are now forced you know, they can't get them in the public system at your local public hospital or public health assessment center. You have to go to a private for-profit clinic now if you're going to get the test and increasingly you have to pay for them. So the province uh, announced, I think it was just yesterday, that Ontarians will be able to get free rapid tests at some grocery stores and pharmacies until at least uh, July 31st. That was after it was criticized for originally offering it for uh, only eight weeks back in February. But you're suggesting these these rapid tests... I mean, they're fine for giving you a hint and whether you're positive or negative and whether you can go into work if you have no symptoms, I guess. But these PCR tests, as you suggest, are the gold standard. Is this is, is charging for the tests a violation of the of the Health Act here in Canada? Yeah, it is. The Canada Health Act is kind of like a bill of rights for patients. It says that everyone has the right to access medically necessary care that includes diagnostic tests um, it, it includes your surgeries your treatments etc um, without financial burden on equal terms and conditions uh, it bans user fees and extra billing of patients what that means for a person is that your medically necessary services are supposed to be covered by ohip you're not supposed to be required to pay when you're sick when you're elderly when you're least able 
to pay. We pay ahead of time through our taxes and healthcare is provided to everyone based on need, not based on how wealthy you are. It's a cornerstone, it's fundamental principles of public Medicare in Canada. That's what we won when we won public Medicare. So to have this happen, you know, just at any time would be bad. In the middle of a global pandemic with an infectious disease that is deadly, is just appalling. It's completely unacceptable. And so we're raising it to try and put pressure on the Ford government, both to stop the privatization of healthcare, which is happening, you know, in an, which they're doing actually in an unprecedented way, but also absolutely urgently, nobody should be required to pay for a COVID-19 PCR test. That's ludicrous. And people should have access to the tests they need, the tests that work, and then actually, you know, give them accurate results. So would this also apply to, as we know, thousands of people who traveled had to get PCR tests, whether they were going across the border or to another country? Do they have an argument that the the government violated the act? No. And thanks for raising that. So, you know, travel isn't a right. It's a privilege. Right. And so there has been kind of a you have to cast the net somewhere when you're defining what are medically necessary and what are medically unnecessary services. Um, you know, getting extra tests or shots or things like that for travel are considered medically unnecessary. We haven't challenged that, frankly. Um, and, you know, they are allowed to charge people for those. But the ones that we're talking about are the ones for people who are, you know, have COVID-19 they might be symptomatic or they might uh, have been exposed to COVID-19. They have elderly relatives. Um, you know, they're worried about them catching it or they have symptoms like GI symptoms, you know, nausea, diarrhea, etc. They don't know whether it's COVID-19 that's going around right now or, or maybe uh, the, a Norwalk uh, virus. They need to know so that they know where they got it and hopefully stop it. You know, those sorts of things or people who are um, need a COVID, like an actual PCR test in order to get insurance um, because they have long COVID or, or people who can't go back to work until they have a test and aren't able to access PCR tests anywhere. You know, those are medically necessary PCR tests um, that people all over Ontario, thousands of people can't get. Uh, at all, or they have to go and pay for them $200, which is, you know, a ludicrous price anyway it's for a, big, a test that's, what, $38? Yeah, it's a big chunk of change, especially for those who can't afford it. Natalie, really appreciate your time today. Best of luck with this campaign going forward. Uh, Rick, thank you very much. That is Natalie Mara, Executive Director of the Ontario Health Coalition. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Niagara Region gearing up for the 2022 tourism season. Is it going to be back to normal or could this be an even busier year for tourism in Niagara Region? Let's ask, well, one of the experts in Niagara, Maury DiMaurizio, is the Chief Operating Officer at City Cruises in Niagara Falls and joins us now. Good morning, Maury. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Thanks very much. I'm doing well. Great to hear. We know that the tourism sector plays an enormous part in uh, the, the health and well-being of Niagara Region. Given what's happened over the last two years, I would imagine that the 2022 tourism season is going to be a big boom. Is that what most people are expecting? Yeah, we're looking at a lot of the indicators that uh, sort of give us a sense of what's happening throughout the world. Uh, we've got a lot of 
partners that operate uh, for Hornblower Group throughout the world that we can tap into that data. And we're really seeing um, there is a lot of pent-up demand. Um, so folks definitely want to start traveling. We're seeing about uh, 75 to 80% of inbound traffic um, gearing up for the 2022 season. And now that's uh, a percent of 2019 pre-pandemic. So those numbers are fairly significant. For those not familiar with City Cruises, what is it all about? Well, sure. Um, <clears throat> Niagara City Cruises operates uh, the world-famous Voyage to the Falls boat tour in Niagara Falls that um, allows folks to get up close and personal to the uh, the falls themselves. Uh, it's a wonderful place to even um, uh, just hang out at the lower landing. Uh, it's got a wonderful lower landing right uh, next to the river. It's one of the few spots you can get safely close to the river and enjoy uh, the wonderful views, uh, the sights and sounds. And, and it's really all about that amazing experience of, of enjoying uh, one of the world wonders. Are more and more people looking for that experience kind of uh, vacation or day trip or whatever the case is? Yeah, most definitely. Uh, we've seen an uptick on that as well, um, uh, specifically in, in uh, Niagara. But also if, if folks are traveling uh, east, there's um, uh, City Cruises Toronto and City Cruises Gananoque, which are, are both uh, sister ports of ours, and we're seeing that the sightseeing and dinner cruising options there are upticking as well. So it's it's a great feeling to see this heading in the right direction. And I know that there are many operators throughout uh, the Niagara area that have been, uh, you know, painfully waiting over the last two years. Uh, but it looks like we're turning the corner, which is great. Where are visitors to Niagara coming from now? Well, so this year it's going to be a little bit different. Um, the makeup is largely Canada, U.S., uh, Europe, South Africa, uh, or sorry, um, South America and, uh, and Australia. Uh, the Middle East and Far East still have not picked up uh, like pre- pre-pandemic numbers. Uh, so we, we're seeing a shift in the demographic or where people uh, are traveling from. Uh, and that's, I think it's largely just due to this return to normal. They're, they're Middle East and Far East are not quite ready yet to make that long haul. But we do see the 2023 returning back to normal as far as that is concerned. Maury DiMarizio is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Chief Operating Officers at City Cruises Canada in Niagara Falls. What unique experiences can visitors to Niagara see and do? Well, there's a myriad of things. I mean, Niagara Falls is known for many, many things. It's not just about uh, the boat tour. Uh, There's so many complimentary things from culinary to uh, food and beverage to shows and entertainment um, the, the, the attractions, uh, the, the shopping is spectacular. Um, so really there's something there for everyone. And, and even if you just want to enjoy the outdoor spaces, there's so many beautiful outdoor gardens all throughout the parkway. Um, it's, it's really a chance to, you know, either calmly get back to nature and enjoy what, what, uh, the outdoors has to offer. Or if you really want to spice it up, there's things, uh, from morning till night, but the, the, there's so many things to do in Niagara Falls. You're never going to get bored. We've seen many people, including a lot of retirees, moving to Niagara during the pandemic. Does that change the tourism dynamic at all? Uh, you know what? It, it's great that they are coming uh, and moving to Niagara. We welcome all of them. But, you know, for in, in terms of percentage numbers, I mean, pre-pandemic, we would do about two and a half million passengers a year just at the boat tour. So, you know, if, if 10,000 people have moved to the area, it, it doesn't really move the needle all that much. But we're still happy to you know, take them on the boat ride. <laughs> uh, we know that there was some good news uh, not too long ago about uh, the border uh, not only reopening, but without testing requirements. That's got to be a huge sigh of relief. Oh, massively. Uh, you, you hit the nail on the head there. For, for those tourists uh, that are traveling to Canada and they want some peace of mind or some certainty, this is definitely shifting in the right direction. 
Um, now, there, there's still a, a couple things that we need to, to jump through as far as rules and regs, but nothing that's going to really um, turn the season uh, uh, you know, into a difficult direction. Now, in saying that, health experts are telling us to get ready for an impending sixth wave of COVID-19. What that looks like obviously remains to be seen, but how is Niagara's tourism sector getting ready for that impending wave? <clears throat> sure. So the, the whole concept of um, safe to play, safe to stay, um, going above and beyond the provincial federal and regional regulations in terms of cleanliness. Uh, there are programs that have been in place for, for over two years now, uh, and they're not changing. We're, we're still going to be doing all those same things in terms of um, the, the, the cleaning regimes, uh, the chemicals that are used, um, you know, the, some of the plexiglass barriers. You're, you might still see some of those in place, even though they're not required anymore. Um, it just it was prudent to kind of leave certain things up in high traffic areas just to not only make the, you know, the guests feel comfortable, but the, the, the staff as well. Um, if, if you're processing several thousand people a day, um, you know, we want to do everything we can to make sure everyone's feeling comfortable and safe. So, you know, the, the fact that the rules and regs have been lifted uh, doesn't mean we're, we're not still being prudent and doing the right thing. From a workforce perspective, is there a shortage of people in the tourism industry in Niagara? Have they left because of what has happened over the last two years? Oh, Rick, you, you, uh, you have no idea. That, that is the number one challenge that you're going to hear uh, across uh, not only Niagara operators, but probably across Canada. Um, finding um, the, the folks to fill those the, the voids uh, of the labor market that was created, it is a significant challenge, uh, and, and everyone is, is vying for that same uh, talented, skilled worker um, to fill those spots. So it, it is going to be difficult, or we're going to get um, uh, real creative and, and have to pivot and figure out um, how we fill those spots. Now, uh, you know, one thing that, that COVID has taught us is we, we've gotten real resilient and real efficient and, and innovative in terms of how we do things. And, and I think that's one of the positive things. It's really taught us how to be super, super efficient. But um, but yeah, most definitely we are having job fairs uh, on, a, on a regular basis. I know that our HR departments are, are working really hard trying to fill those spots. And uh, it's frustrating. Uh, you know, there's, there's tons of spots to fill and, and not a lot of folks are, are uh, available to fill those spots. Well, hopefully that can be uh, addressed going forward and we get people into those uh, positions because uh, I'm sure Canadians are amped up to be uh, visiting places like Niagara. Maury, really appreciate the time today. Best of luck with the tourism season this year. Thanks very much, Rick. That's Maury DiMaurizio, Chief Operating Officer at City Cruises Canada in Niagara Falls as Niagara gears up for what should be a very busy 2022 tourism season. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Today is National Indigenous Languages Day. And the word reconciliation has been used a lot this week with an Indigenous delegation in Italy at the Vatican. But what does reconciliation mean if the Catholic Church, which ran 60% of residential schools, doesn't apologize? And what does reconciliation look like if we don't right past wrongs? Well, for thousands of Indigenous, that conversation has been taking place in English. But there are at least 70 indigenous languages in this country, and there are many knowledge keepers working to keep those languages alive. Today, as I mentioned, is National Indigenous Languages Day, and Global's Lauren McNabb recently spoke to two people who are fighting hard to keep not just their language, but their very identity alive. It's the kind of story he might have told as a boy. Today I, I went down to the river with my brothers and cousins. And Sharing with his family. We come from the Wachpetuan tribe. On the Sioux Valley Dakota Nation, 250 kilometers west of Winnipeg, how he had spent his day. I grew up in a very uh, safe and happy home. 
we had a small farm and everything was good. My mom and dad, my grandpa and my brothers and sisters. We used to talk at night when we finished the day. Well, you know, my two older sisters went, were forced to go to residential school and our talk stopped because the family circle was broken. Eventually, Dakota elder Wambade Wakita ended up in a residential school too. One of more than 150,000 Indigenous children placed in a system designed to strip them of their culture, their language. When did you hear your first English words? Oh, residential school, of course. That was in Northern Ontario, and that's where Pat Nangwant spent two years in the residential school system. The first time at age five, the second at 13. By the time she got to her 20s, she realized English was taking over. They were losing it already by that time. There was um, people my age couldn't speak it anymore. That was the 1960s. Today, many Indigenous languages are considered endangered. Of the 94 calls to action, Listed in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, five deal with the importance of revitalizing Indigenous languages. With Indigenous people, I think there's a a great need now. I think there's a a great want to reclaim the language. You use the word need. Why do you think it needs to happen? If you get swallowed up by English, and English is everywhere. It's on TV. We have books in English. Um, radio. At one, what point do you start identifying with the culture, the worldview of that language, where you stop thinking of yourself as a Anishinaabe? What, where, where does that happen? I'm not Canadian. I'm not Manitoban. I'm not a Winnipegger. I'm, I'm Dakota. For the Dakota elder, it is so much more than just speaking it. Wakita. It means looking eagle in the Dakota language. Starting with his name and how he lives his name. After he'd done the ceremony, he told me, your name is Wambadi Wakita. And the reason why the spirit bought you that name, he says, you look over the people, make sure everything is okay. And if it isn't, you go and help them. When he told me that, I'm thinking, how am I supposed to help people? I don't. I don't have anything, I don't know anything. But 15 years later, Creator gave me a job, so away I went. What was the job? To make prayers for people. While he spent six years in the military before that, working as a peacekeeper in places like Cyprus, his calling from the Creator has been to receive sacred instructions and take them to his people. Just a regular thing, God-given language. And I'm protecting my culture by doing these, these things. That desire to protect is fierce. Because of his family, Elder Wakita never stopped speaking Dakota. You you keep that foundation, the family foundation, and how good it was. Because of her family. My grandmother lived with us. That's a picture of her painting of her there. Pat Nangwans is working to ensure Ojibwe lives on. For more than four decades, she's not just taught the language, but written about it. Fourteen different books, like Gukum's language, Gukum means grandmother in Ojibwe. On the cover of the lesson book, her grandmother's picture. It really affected me very, very positively, very profoundly. And uh, that's probably why I was so proud of my language, because of her and my parents.
She's put together a thesaurus for Ojibwe, is working on a dictionary, and a few years ago took some of the legends her mom shared with her and put them on paper. This happened long ago before the white man came to the Thunder Bay area. But what she would really like to see is more immersive experiences, media in her language, more camps for kids in indigenous languages, tourism experiences where you live, eat, breathe the culture. To bring back what was stolen through colonialism and residential schools. For a long time I denied it, but I can't deny it anymore. They succeeded. Uh, We have people my age that don't speak it anymore. People my age who speak it but don't pass it on in the family anymore because it gets stuck here. There's a block here. As she points to her throat, Pat Nangwans shares how that block hit her too. Despite the love she's always had for Ojibwe, she didn't teach it to her son. Whatever trauma happened to us as a people, it stopped us from, from passing on the language. But she has taught it to her grandson, and now they both teach Ojibwe at the University of Manitoba. It's love. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very um, wonderful field to be in. And so on this National Indigenous Languages Day, this is her message. Keep talking. I would like um, every day to be Native Language Day. Keep practicing your culture. And for Elder Wakita, right the wrongs. They asked me lots of times, what about truth and reconciliation? I said, tell me the truth first. Right the wrongs. And then maybe, I said, if I see real clear uh, goodness coming from, from you, I might consider reconciliation. That was a fantastic report. The last census showed just 1,300 people in this country speak Dakota and closer to 30,000 speak Ojibwe. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Uh Uh-oh, Richard! (laughs) Oh, wow! Wow! Will Smith just smacked the out of me. That was Sunday night at the Oscars. Last night, comedian Chris Rock performed in public for the first time since he was slapped by Will Smith at the Academy Awards. How was your weekend? <laughs> I had like a whole show I wrote before <laughs> this weekend. And I'm still kind of processing what happened. Like, so that's Rock received a thunderous standing ovation from the audience at a comedy show in Boston. Ticket sales, by the way, for his latest tour have absolutely skyrocketed since he was slapped on Sunday. But with all of that going on, with the slap still generating headlines all over the world, the incident has proven that toxic masculinity still runs really deep in Hollywood. Johanna Sneller is a contributing columnist at the Globe and, Ma- Globe and Mail and wrote an exceptional piece earlier this week about what happened at the Oscars. Johanna, good morning. How are you today? Hey, hi. Nice to be with you. We've all had a few days now to digest uh, what happened at the Oscars. What's been your main takeaway? Well, it's, it's one of these stories that at first, you know, it appeared to be about the slap. But um, very quickly, uh, I think really the moment on Monday that Will Smith sent an Instagram apology out to the world, 
I think that then the story became something different about whether violence is ever appropriate or ever acceptable, because he says very clearly that violence isn't the answer. But this story is still a lens that everybody is viewing their world through. I mean, there's the, there's very quickly it divided along racial lines, which I thought was really interesting and something that I was not expecting, with a lot of black writers saying, you know, you don't understand, the, the, the white world is so... It, you know, he was in such a white space, and 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 you know, in to treat him as if he was just you know a thug is the wrong approach, and it doesn't do anybody any good. And black women are probably the most undefended people on earth, and so a lot of black women writers responded with, you know, yes, it's not the way we want to be defended, but it's great that somebody actually was defending us for a change. And, uh, you know, then there's people who, who sort of talked about it from the, from the lens of masculinity and, and, and violence being passed down. Will Smith has admitted that his father was violent and beat up his mother when, and Will was nine and witnessed it and did nothing about it. He wrote extensively about that in his book. So, so the concept of, you know, violence being passed down through the generations has come up. Obviously, there's the alopecia angle. There's an angle about whether we should ever make fun of people for their appearance, whether it's ever okay. Um, and even whether these kinds of jokes, these kinds of personal jokes, are even acceptable anymore. Um, I think humor is changing. So it's, it's become this like very wide-ranging kaleidoscopic story. Perhaps most tragic is that Jada Pinkett Smith, Will Smith's wife, was really robbed of a response. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people have pointed out that she was, wasn't a nominee this year. She was a guest. And so that really sort of made her not fair game to be the butt of a joke. Uh, there was obviously history between Chris Rock and Will Smith. They'd had, you know, Chris Rock had made jokes about Will Smith before, as the whole world now remembers. Jada's had a chance. She could have responded. She posted an Instagram, very cryptic Instagram, that said, you know, this is a season of healing and I'm here for it. So, you know, she is sort of choosing to stay out of the fray here. And and we don't know how she feels about what her husband did. Like, is she proud of him? Is she ashamed of him? Is she glad he defended her? You know, she hasn't she hasn't spoken yet, so we don't know. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Our guest is Johanna Schneller, contributing columnist at The Globe and Mail, wrote a really well-written piece in The Globe earlier this week about the slap at the Oscars on Sunday. Uh, as you mentioned, Will Smith apologized to the Academy and to TV viewers, but it wasn't until, I think it was the next day, or maybe even beyond that, when he apologized to Chris Rock. With that being said, do you think that Will was still thinking he was in the right for what he did? Well, you know, what a lot of people now are are sort of refocusing on is the fact that he went out on Sunday night and partied at the, you know, there's famous footage of him at the Vanity Fair party dancing to one of his own songs and holding his Oscar aloft. Um, new information has also just broken uh, yesterday that people did, people from the Oscars uh, production team did ask him to leave and he declined. So that so there is like a little bit of pushback now. You know, there was sort of this movement toward let's try to go move beyond the slap and understand the reasons behind the slap. And now it's like, well, but they asked him to leave and he didn't leave. And, and uh, what is that all about? The Academy has given him notice that he is going, uh, that they're going to review this case. He has 15 days to make a case to them before their meeting on, I think it's April 18th, where they're going to decide whether he should be censured or suspended or something from the academy. Um, and then there's this other issue that, you know, 
Chris Rock was working that night. As a working actor, he's protected by his union, and is his union, who's responsible for workplace safety, going to do anything on his behalf? So, you know, it's still a wide-open story about consequences as well as, you know, meanings. You only have about a minute here. Uh, Will Smith is one of the most iconic blockbuster movie starring people in Hollywood. Does this tarnish his legacy? Oh, I think he's going to he's going to wear this for a while. Yeah. I mean, I think it's going to be a climb back for him and uh, friends of mine and I in the business were speculating about what that climb back might be. Is it going to be a sit down with Oprah and Chris Rock? Is it going to be some sort of, you know, big anti-violence public service announcement campaign. Traditionally, the person who wins Best Actor comes back the next year at the Oscars to present Best Actress, and will the Academy have him back to do that? Uh, He's got a lot of damage repair to do. No doubt about that. Johanna, really appreciate the time. Awesome column, and uh, we'll talk to you down the road. Thank you. That is Johanna Schneller, contributing columnist, The Globe and Mail, recapping what happened on Sunday and all the uh, after effects that have gone on over the last number of days. There's been each and every day something new popping out in this story. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.